the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Nuclear power in shipping has long been considered something of a niche discussion. A small band of atomic evangelists routinely pop up every few decades, only to then quietly disappear in the face of public and political opposition. But for the first time in a long while, nuclear is now gaining traction in industry circles, who are being forced to consider radically different and urgent alternatives to fuel shipping's decarbonisation trajectory. Let's be honest, there is some pretty sizable hurdles for this to overcome as a technology. But if you can get over the image problems, the Cold War memories, and the inevitable references to Fukushima, Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, if you can accept the arguments being put forward in terms of life cycle management, safety and security, well, then the pitch currently being made for a second atomic era is something I think we should at least be considering right now. The new generation of molten salt reactor, MSR technology, promises to make the power of the atom a viable economic solution to shipping's decarbonisation question by the end of the decade. That's according to Mikhail Bowe, founder and chief executive of the London-based Core Power. He says that the issues of old nuclear have been tackled. And as you're going to hear in this week's podcast, he has an answer to all the questions of economics, spent fuels and proliferation, And of course, he has a pretty strong view on how to change the big problem of public perception. So as we work our way through the pros and cons of shipping zero carbon future fuels on Noiseless Podcast, I think it's only fair that we give the nuclear option some consideration this week. This is, I think, one of those things that, you know, the time has come. Um, But it's important to recognise that, you know, we're not... We're not talking about you know conventional nuclear. We're not talking about you know the sort of atomic technologies and nuclear power that we've grown up with throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s until today. I mean, we're talking about a, a radically different way of, of doing this. And and I think the you know the the, the the general fear that exists out there of, of nuclear power is one which is you know linked to the Cold War. It's linked to you know all sorts of scare. Um, scary stories that that we grew up with and you know by by doing this differently by doing this in such a way that we actually solve these problems rather than add to the problems that we have by introducing a, a radically different type of atomic technology i think these things these things really come to the fore and you know it's it's particularly to do with the, the timing now you know we are we are in a, in, living in an era where you know climate change is dominating pretty much the discussions we have every day and you know, it's trying to find that one thing that's going to really make a difference, right? Rather than, you know, doing marginal changes to the way we do things today and we've done things for a long time. I mean, you know, the sun's always been shining, the wind's always been blowing, but, you know, we sort of, you know, those those technologies got outcompeted by coal a long time ago. So we've got to, we've got to try to, we've got to try to move forward here. And it's all to do with all to do with energy density at the end of the day, right? So what we're talking about here with the, the molten salt reactor in particular is, you know, it's a liquid-fueled technology that operates with a fuel efficiency which is vastly superior to to, to conventional nuclear. You know, it's it's a liquid fuel, so it can't melt down. You know, it's got no pressure in it, so it can't expel toxins into the environment. It's a closed system, which operates at 
you know, closer to 100% efficiency rather than the closer to 0% efficiency that we have with conventional. So conventional nuclear is about 1% fuel efficient. It leaves that 99% of all the fuel that goes in comes out as nuclear waste. That's unpopular. Um, but if we're operating at, you know, 96, 97, 98% fuel efficiency, you know, the amount of waste that's left behind is is, is, is marginal, it's absolutely marginal. And it's a very different type of waste as well, which we can use for other things. So I think this is about as close as we can get to the sustainability. You know, we're using a fuel that's two, three, four million times more energy dense than diesel. And we're using up you know, close to 100% of energy potentially in that in a, in a small machine. So, you know, I think that this, you mentioned the sort of debate around, you know, alternative fuels and, and, and where we can go. I think this really underpins that whole thing because we see this as a as a technology that enables, if you like, the the creation of of a green you know, green fuels in 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 enormous quantities, the kind of quantities that we need in order to to move forward and to grow our industries here. So, you know, we, we think this is the technology that really underpins that, provides reliable, cheap, durable, and with very little environmental impact, you know, these these green fuels. Plus, of course, then the ultimate aim, of course, is to put these reactors on, on, on ships and they can sail directly as fully electric ships with no fuel tanks, no smokestacks, you know, mm. no, not be refueled, you know, for, for 30 years, et cetera, um, emitting nothing, um, essentially. I think that's that, that's that, that's really why I think this has now come to the fore because there is there is a <laughs> there is a certain um, there is a certain allure to this, and there th- that is important in terms of looking at this as a fuel option, not just in terms of the specifics of what is coming out of the smokestack of the ship, but in terms of the life cycle of the fuel. And I think this is perhaps part of the debate that is only now really coming into the uh, the debate around you know this 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 idea of well to wake uh, you know we talk about green ammonia or, or or green hydrogen but actually the fuel uh, is part of a life cycle of energy that is not as green as perhaps we might think it may get there in terms of that global energy transition but right now we're talking about uh, a huge amount of energy being put in to create the fuel that would then be making the ships green and that really is just kicking the emissions up the value chain with nuclear that, that is a bit different well yeah indeed and i think that i think that's a that's a key point it's very central to the whole debate right it's 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 looking at the total life cycle footprint of what we do if we're operating large industrial assets you know factories ships um and other very energy hungry assets you know we need to look at not just the operating life of those ships and what they what they emit where they are, but you know the the whole chain, right? If we're drilling or if we're mining or if we're, we're, we're you know processes for for creating this technology and the fuel that is in it, all that stuff needs to be needs to be uh, accounted for in the total life cycle, um, you know, sort of account if you like, and you know that that's I think where where this really you know also plays a big part. You know, if you're going to be you know, mining millions of tons of material to make solar panels, for example, and you're going to be left with, you know, hundreds of millions of tons of, of, of you know, waste solar panels at the end of it that can't necessarily be decommissioned. You know, you're sort of, it's it's that once through fuel cycle that we need to get away from. It's this idea that, you know, we have to consume or, 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 or we have to, we have to combust in order to, in order to create energy. I think this is, mm. 
this is where advanced atomic really plays a very different role in this. You know, we've got a fuel here, especially in, in this particular configuration, a liquid fuel inside these reactors that constantly is reconfigured simply because it's it's liquid and we're using up so much of it that it, it it's 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 small. I mean, we did some calculations, Richard, which says that you know if you took the took the seventeen seventeen thousand largest chips in the world. This is entirely theoretical, of course, but the 17,000 largest chips in the world, which account for somewhere between 75% and 80% of all the emissions that this industry produces, and you move them onto this technology. The total amount of fuel that we would use is 3,300 tons per year. That's 3,300 3, tons of, of uranium. Um, which would go into these and would eventually then, you know, come out as come out as some sort of spent fuel. Um, but that's that's the total, you know, that's the total load, if you like, of waste that's left, you know, after 80% of the emissions have disappeared from this industry. So it's it's, you know, it is a it is a different way of looking at it. And you know, think of this as a metal as well, right? Which which has a very high density. So you know, the actual quantity of it is 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 rather small. Just to give you another <laughs> these sort of mind-bending statistics, the, the the efficiency of the technology we're talking about here is equivalent to one gram of fuel per megawatt day. So you can work out the amount of megawatt days your assets you know needs and consumes, and you can multiply that up in number of grams. It, uh, you give an example in a, a, a cape size, 185,000 deadweight cape size, you know, running at you know full capacity, uh, full utilization for a full 25 years, we use about 165 kilos of fuel. And you make a compelling case, and I, I think on paper at least there are now at least several owners out there working directly with you, and you know considering this as a viable option for the future, but. We mentioned this in the same breath as ammonia and hydrogen, which, granted, you know, require a certain amount of R&D in terms of the infrastructure and uh, how you would theoretically get those into a scalable format that would allow shipping to, you know, switch fuels to, to, to zero carbon alternatives down the line. But let's be fair, nuclear and atomic, you know, as much as you will uh, push this idea as a sort of viable technology, we are talking about it as a bit of a periphery technology when it comes to this debate still. I think part of that is getting over the technological aspects of, of how you would integrate that into a into a into an industry that, you know, doesn't like change that much. But I would also say that the bigger barrier is perhaps psychological rather than technological. How do you overcome that in the conversations you're having with the industry in terms of you know shifting the attitudes towards atomic energy as a as a genuine contender? Well, you know it's it's funny, you know we wait for we wait for decades to something for something to to happen, and then you know decades happen in a short amount of time. It's sort of you know the the, the what we're seeing is, what we're seeing is a, is, a, is a genuine and decisive shift in public opinion around this, and that's related to information and understanding, right? Um, you know, a lot of a lot of fear is based on on not knowing about things or being fearful of things that other people have told you to be fearful of. And we we've seen this shift now, specifically over the last three years, where you know we started off with. I'd say no more than no more than five of a five out of a hundred people that I spoke to would say, yeah, that's a great idea. You should definitely go and 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 get that done. Um, with a very large group of those people saying, I'm not so sure. You know, it it might work. You know, you might have to work on it, and maybe it'll happen. And then you know, an even larger group saying, yeah, this is nuts. You know, it's never going to happen. 
that's really changed. Over the last three years, you know, we've seen that changed now. You know, we see polls being put out there with, with senior executives in this industry, with more than 50% saying, yeah, that's the future. That If we can make that work, that's the future. And we've got a smaller group saying, you know, mm, not so sure, still very skeptical of this. And we've got a, an even smaller group saying, oh, forget about it. It's never going to happen. Public opinion, I think, and, and you know, sort of the, the opinion of, of industry and executives is one that shifts over time. We, we see this in everything. It's, it's not set in stone. I think confirmation bias plays a role in here. We, 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 do, we have to question our assumptions and the, the facts that we have. And we see that, we see that changing. I, just one last point on this, Richard. I think, you know, we see, we see younger generations being much more open to this than, you know, us oldies, right, who, who, who sat there in the Cold War and taught to hide under our desk at, uh, at, at school if the alarm went off. The... the that that younger generation is much more concerned about climate change, much more concerned about the environment, and much less concerned about the fears of, of the older generations. And those are taking over these industries. Those are the ones that are, if you like, sitting in the, in the, in the manager's seat in shipping companies and big trading houses and industrial organizations around the world. And I think that's that 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 shift that shift comes faster than we think. So, you know, given the speed of change we've seen in the last three years, I'd say over the next five to ten years, we 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 think this will turn from, from, you know, from, from where it is today through acceptance and into enthusiasm, actually. Mm. I mean, given what we can achieve, there's, uh, what's there to be afraid of? Well, I mean, let's, let's tackle that, the, the what is there to be afraid of aspect, because, I mean, safety and security are going to be fairly high on the list of uh, obvious concerns, I think, to many. Uh, you know, we think about, you know, the energy density as a, as a theoretical uh, idea for, for nuclear, but the practical realities of shipping are that ships sink and they're hijacked and, you know, things like that happen. How do you think, you know, the nuclear option, you know, fares at the extreme ends of the industry where security and safety are perhaps not operating in ideal circumstances? Yeah, so... so- you know, accidents, marine accidents will always happen. I mean, unfortunately, it's one of those things. And, and the accident scenarios that we have at sea are very different than we have on land. So, you know, in, in a sense, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind, but that's not really the way we should approach this. Um, the, I think the, the, the advantages of the particular technology that we're putting forward, and remember, we've, we've looked at and, and studied, you know, an enormous amount of different type of reactor technologies and, and different types of a range of, 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 of energy systems to go around them as well before we, we settled on the molten salt reactor as the one. And that, you know, molten salt reactor is one of those that that, that helps to mitigate a lot of these things. There's, there's clearly a, a lot of work that needs to be done over the next years and as we as we develop the technology in terms of you know how we mitigate uh, you know uh, leaks and and you know all the various things that they, that can happen as a result of, of an accident explosions collisions groundings um, you know um, all, all these things the the, the natural fail safes in this technology the thing that basically passively shuts down the reactor and, and renders it idle and then lets the, the 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 fuel cool to the point where it's you know quite rapidly actually happens over a number of days where it cools to to into a rock so you have this sort of entombed rock that sits inside the, mm. the reactor as the ship goes down to eight thousand meters it's not really an environmental concern it doesn't leak into the environment it doesn't poison the area around it what we'd like to do of course is to try to find some way of getting this 
as reactor back up again. And that's, you know, various ways of working on that. But the, the, the passive fail safes that, that that come with the sort of the, the physics and the and the and the and the chemistry of these machines, not something that we're engineering around them, but you know, actually they're inherently present in this technology, I think is it's very conducive to this. Um, but you know, we have to we have to consider, you know, from an engineering point of view, every every single possible thing that could go wrong and and, and mitigate that. And you know, I see that as uh, I see that as a, as a challenge, and I think that's one that we're up to. And I think it's something that the shipping industry is uh, is actually quite good at. And the, and the security issues. I mean, nuclear proliferation, materials uh, circling around the world. Uh, you know, what what about the concerns there? Yeah, so that's another key, right? So so one of the reasons why why you know conventional nuclear technology is is unsuited for our industry is because it requires such frequent refueling. If you take a you know, a, a submarine reactor and you put civilian grade fuel in it and you use it on a on a tanker or a cargo ship, you know, it, it'll need refueling every 18 to 24 months. So if you scale, if you theoretically learn, if you scale that up into into a large number of ships, you'd you'd have uh, you'd have you know refueling ports. You'd have to handle you know atomic material in ports around the world. And that's you know that's a proliferation risk. You know they could fall into the wrong hands. They could do something. All these things. So with with the molten salt reactor here, we're looking at we're looking at a machine that doesn't really require run run as a as a marine reactor doesn't really require fueling for refueling for anything up to thirty years, which is effectively the the life of the vessel. So it's a closed system, so it's like a tamper proof closed system where the fuel does not leave uh, the the machine throughout that period, and you can't really take it out either. You can't reach in and take the fuel out of these machines. That's uh, orders of magnitude more difficult than I think anyone's capable of. So it's it's sort of, I think I think that 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 helps to really mitigate that. You know, there is no handling of spent fuels, therefore there is no proliferation because that's really where that that comes from. Enrichment okay. and proliferation is sorry, and 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 spent fuels is where proliferation originates, and neither of these are present in the system. And the, the the big one, uh, the one that will be, I, I suspect, on the lips of uh, any ship owners listening, is is going to be the cost. Uh, you know, capex expenditure to create, uh, you know, green ammonia, um, hydrogen. I think there's there's certainly numbers and estimates wandering around the industry, and you can kick the tires on them and argue uh, how realistic they are once you factor in various other things. You know, nuclear, I think, you know, in our heart, we know it's expensive, but, you know, how would you compare the sort of the long term capex of such investment compared to other options being considered in the wider decarbonisation argument? Yeah, and that, that's that's really, you know, I, I guess the heart of the matter here, right, because this is a competitive industry, uh, you know, to, to introduce a technology that, you know, is uneconomical to shipping is just not going to fly. It has to be it has to be. Um, Affordable. It has to be competitive. It has to create a competitive advantage for for companies that that are in our industry and that you know compete with each other and are exposed to the kind of volatilities that we see in these markets. So I think I think it's really there's two ways of looking at this. One is if you if you think about the the production of green fuels, effectively it means starting with the production of green hydrogen. And green hydrogen requires a huge amount of energy to to be produced. And as a result, it's you know four or five times more expensive than grey or black hydrogen, you know, produced with gas or coal or oil, as it is today. And what we need to do is in order for green fuels to be competitive, is we need to get that green hydrogen price down to a point where it can be competitive with grey and black. And that's you know around the sort of two dollars per kilo, two thousand dollars per ton type type of price 
um, with the for, for the green hydrogen. Then that's converted into green ammonia using nitrogen uh, or into into methanol using CO2. So so it's it's sort of industrial processes, and that needs huge amounts of energy. So we think that the the, the way that you would use a molten salt reactor, which has that advantage of extremely high temperature heat, um, we can use actually the heat. So in terms of in terms of producing synthetic um, fuels from from green hydrogen, it's not electric power from the from the from the uh, reactors that that we're converting using this to convert to convert into into green hydrogen. But it's the it's the it's the if you like industrial heat that comes from it. So that's you know, vastly superior in its efficiency, um, so we can bring the cost of that green hydrogen down. We're modeling that at the moment with with the way it is at sort of three and a half, three to three and a half dollars per kilo. And we think that by mass manufacturing of these machines, so you know, if you like shipyard serialization or actual factory building of these reactors for larger systems, you know, we can bring that down below two dollars per kilo, and that's. That's really where it's super competitive. That means ammonia is sort of in the in the low 300s, uh, and methanol about the same thing. And that's that's where we can we can be competitive. So I think that underpins a very large part of that. If you then take the next step and say, okay, if I, in the future we'd also like to put these reactors on ships to run them as propulsion units, soon as we have fully electric ships run by these reactors, then it's really a question of can the owners afford the the capex because there's very little opex. Here. You know they're fueled for life, so you, it's a bit like buying a, a diesel engine and all the bunkers up front, right? And you use it for 25 years. Um, so, so there is a there is a there is a very large amount of energy left in these machines at the end of that 25 30 year period. So the residual value of that energy means that we can calculate in a leasing. Um, scheme. It also solves the issue of who's going to be the licensed operator of, the, of these machines. If you like, so do like the airline industries or airline industries do. They, they lease their their engines from from the manufacturers. They get crew life maintenance. They get embedded crews. They get all sorts of all sorts of benefits from that. And then and it's basically on a on, on a flat flat cost. So it removes volatility from the cost of propulsion. It provides a, a flat, reliable cost at you know which is. And that they also have to admit, Richard, you know, it's immune to to carbon taxes, right? Well, quite, quite. And uh, you know, we are, we are talking about a fairly rapid pace of investment that is going to be required for all of the options that are going to take us through to 2050. Mm. Uh, it sounds like a long uh, run up, but uh, realistically, in shipping terms, you're talking about you know less than one investment cycle of an asset the last uh, 25 years or so. I mean, how I'm not going to ask you sort of whether you think nuclear is going to be a viable proposition by then, because clearly you are very much a, uh, you know, an avid proponent of it. But what would you say is what, what would you say needs to change within the industry, be it, you know, in terms of attitude or infrastructure or regulation for, for nuclear to really be you know, considered a contender up there with hydrogen and ammonia and the, uh, the ones that are leading the polls in the industry right now? Good question, Richard. I, I honestly think that what what needs to change is a shift away from the, if you like, the environmental side of this, and to try to rather than just focus on the environmental side, saying, look, we've got to invest in things that are green. It doesn't really matter what they do or what they cost or, or how uncompetitive or competitive they are, and then rather to set put that at the centre of it and say, look, we take that as a given. That's something we have to create. Now we have to go out. And we have to 
you know, invest in, in, in technologies and build the technologies that can supply that and give us the competitive edge that we need to continue to operate as a, as a, as a commercial shipping industry. I mean, this is a, an industry that's never been a team sport, but you know, recently we've seen you know, everyone getting together and collaborating and talking about solutions, et cetera. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, we need to be able to create uh, you know, new technologies. We need to be able to rethink the way ships work for the future so that they can be competitive whilst emitting nothing. And I think that basically is a, is a big shift. You take the you sort of you you take away you take away the, the the purpose of just greening to one way. You say, look, we've got to we've got to get technologies that provides that as a as a standard, not as a not as an added benefit to what we're doing. And I mean, that's it. You know, we need to invest. We need to people need to decide, you know, what they think the future might hold and and, and place their bets. You know, but um, but but bets on different horses and 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 see what see what comes of it. Those that don't, I think, are going to left behind. I think, yeah. You know, waiting to see what happens is 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 going to be, um, and I, I think it's an issue of, of, of people being on the defensive. I think we need to, we, people need to step up and, and and make their choices. Well, we will continue to uh, examine the pros and cons of the various options on the table for the industry in our mini series of uh, examinations on on future fuels for the industry. But for now, uh, Mikko Bo, Chief Executive of Core Power, thank you very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. Thanks, Richard. It's been a pleasure. 